0: I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And
1: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief
0: of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The other day, you said that you were not responsible for the testing shortfall. Very simple question. Does the buck stop with you? And on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your response to this crisis? I'd rate it at 10. That was Yahoo News White House reporter Hunter Walker grilling President Trump on his handling of the coronavirus crisis and eliciting one of the more striking, though not really surprising responses we've heard in some time. The president rated his performance as perfect. It came on a day that the Dow Jones Industrials tanked nearly 3,000 points, and the U.S. government issued draconian new guidelines recommending that all Americans avoid groups of more than 10 people. Across the country, schools are closing, bars and restaurants and health clubs are shuttering, and the public is more confused than ever. How long will this national emergency last, and will we end up, like Italy, in national lockdown? We'll talk to Yahoo News reporter Alex Nazarian, who just interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci on where we're headed, and with public health expert and epidemiologist Catherine Jacobson on this special coronavirus episode of Skullduggery. I'm Michael Isikoff, chief investigative reporter for Yahoo News.
2: And
1: I'm Dan Kleidman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News.
0: Well, what a difference a weekend makes. On Friday, President Trump was out there at the White House saying that we have the virus under control. He was touting the big uptick in the stock market, his beloved stock market. And here we are just a few days later and things look like they couldn't be worse at this point. We are facing the most severe changes in American life we've seen in some time. It's almost head spinning to watch.
1: Well, on some level, I am relieved that the president has finally, I think, begun to face reality here and how severe a threat this is. On the other hand, it's a little scary because... For him to acknowledge that we're dealing with a really, really, really grave threat here suggests it really is that grave. So I've said this before, I have never covered a story, and at this point I think I would say 9-11 included, where... The story itself is reflected so personally in our everyday lives. Every American is dealing with this now. We all have to change our fundamental behavior. We have to change the assumptions we have about what it is to be an American. And um, this is a very difficult adjustment. And it is a huge test of our society and our ability to have that kind of collective response to, uh, to this threat. So, I'm mildly encouraged I've seen some changes in behavior among you know my own behavior. Look at us I mean we're, we're, do- <laughs> we're doing we're doing this from our homes we're right. actually We actually had to learn how to record locally a term that I didn't even know until this week. These two old guys have to figure out how to use technology for the first time. talk about a change in our in our personal lives. <laughs>
0: Uh, You know, uh, I went into the uh, office today to pick up the equipment so we can do this podcast from home. And when I got back, uh, my wife treated me like a leper, Um, immediately had me change my clothes, hop into the shower and uh, not touch anything in the house uh, until I had cleansed myself. So that's a sign, I suspect, of how a lot of people are reacting to what they're hearing on the news But, you know, we don't know, is any interaction with any other person a threat to uh, our health right now? This is really perplexing.
1: Yeah, and I think there really is not enough information out there for the uh, epidemiologists and the scientists to figure out exactly how this is going to unfold. And that's why the measures that we are being asked to take are becoming you know, so much more serious and extreme on a daily basis. You know, it was just yesterday, as we record this podcast, that we were told that uh, there shouldn't be uh, gatherings of 50 people or more. Now it's down to 10. And um, that's unsettling. It's a little bit scary. On the other hand, you know, one of the things that I have been hearing people say lately is it's okay if it turns out that we overreacted, because the last thing we want to do is underreact. And so, you know, that's just, a think, a feature of of a pandemic, a situation like this where there is so much uncertainty
0: and not to mention the fact that um, we are recording this on monday tomorrow is another primary day people are expected to show up at the polls and vote how that is going to play out and whether people will show up and if they do will they get the virus will they get sick and Beyond that, looking forward, how are the future primaries going to take place? What happens when we get to the conventions in the summer? The president today said this could last until July or August. Well, that's convention season among other events. It's really amazing and well I we've think- already
1: seen we've already seen Louisiana postpone its primary. The Governor of Ohio was talking about the possibility of delaying the primary. Where we are, let's God hope that we're not in this situation in the fall when the presidential election itself is looming. You do hear people talk about the possibility of delaying the election. Um, I, <laughs> well, I, I, that, I think that, about and, that. Yeah, that is not, that. I, I looked it up. The date is not actually set in the Constitution. That is a, a statute passed by Congress the second first Tuesday in in November. So. So it actually can be changed by congressional statute, but uh, let's hope that's not where we're going to well, end up.
0: I, I suspect you may have uh, caused a, a near panic in just raising that issue. Uh, <laughs> the idea that our president uh, might try to uh, postpone the election so he can stay president uh, longer. We'll deal with that in future episodes, but right now we've got two great guests uh, to talk to about uh, where we are and where we're headed. Um, Alex Nazarian, our colleague who has uh, just finished and illuminating interview with uh, Dr. Fauci himself and Catherine Jacobson. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Alex Nazarian, our ace coronavirus reporter, previously our ace impeachment reporter. Alex, welcome back to Skullduggery.
2: Thank you. It's hard to believe that impeachment was only two months ago. It feels like two decades ago.
0: From where you stand,
1: covering this story from for some time now, tell us what you think this—well, what has this last week been like? What is the trajectory going forward? What do you think the most important developments have been over the last few days? Well,
2: Danny, as you know, I just um, just got off the phone with Dr. Fauci, and one of the things he told me was that it was unnerving for him to see people still out in Washington, in New York— Um, in bars, in restaurants. And he said, look, these new guidelines we issued are very tough, but these are his words, people have to adhere to the guidelines. And I I think this is really the question. We can critique Trump all we want. We can, and and no doubt, he and his administration have made some errors, but the guidelines are sound. And the question is, can we as a country do what it takes to stop this virus? And I don't know. I don't know the answer.
1: Yeah, I've heard people talk about... You know, one of the big differences between our country and, say, a China or even a South Korea is that we lack the social cohesion that some other societies have. Um, and forget about the politics. Forget about the fact that China is a more, is an authoritarian regime. It's just a lot harder in our culture for people to adapt. To things like this to change their lifestyles we have this expectation of a kind of freedom that we get to do what we want to do and this is a extremely difficult adjustment
2: right and what I thought was really striking in Trump's press conference today was when someone asked him about comments by one of his closest congressional allies, Devin Nunes, when Devin Nunes advised people to go out to restaurants on Fox News a couple of days ago, and Trump did something he never does. He said, no, Nunes, in, in his own way, he said, no, Nunes is wrong. Listen to the experts. And, and, well, and that that was just, a, I actually thought that was quite powerful, given how much Nunes has done for Trump on Russia and impeachment, for him to basically say, Don't listen to one of my closest friends in
0: Washington. You mentioned Fauci's uh, comments to you, and we've actually got a clip of your interview with Dr. Fauci on that point about uh, how he feels or how he felt when he saw the reports and photographs of uh, people congregating at uh, bars and restaurants over the weekend. Let's uh, let's play a little bit of that. So, Dr. Fauci,
2: you must have been fairly distressed to see people in New York and Washington packing into bars, restaurants, certainly also the images from airports around the country. Those must be quite distressing.
0: Well, they are, because it's clear that those are the situations that put people very much at risk.
2: And that's the reason why, with the guidelines, there's a strong urging for people to avoid Places where people congregate, like bars, like restaurants, like uh, uh, places where there are crowds. In fact, the recommendation is the best as possible to avoid any congregation more than 10 people. So yes, when I see crowded bars and crowded restaurants, uh, it is a little bit unnerving because you know that that's the place when you have crowds like that where you'll actually wind up being a perfect setup to transmit infection. And look, and this is what Dr. Deborah Burks said in her comments during the press conference. He more or less reiterated that. And it's, this is up to us. Yes, of course, it's up to Trump. It's up to the CDC, to the NIH. But if we are packing into bars, shouldering each other for you know $10 shots of Jack Daniels, well, we're going to pay the price. We can either break the back of this thing right now, or we can keep fighting it for another year.
0: Speaking of timeframes, I was really struck when Trump said that this crisis could last until July or August right into the summer. That was something we hadn't heard before. We'd been hearing timeframes of maybe four to eight weeks, but not into the summer. And my God, if it's going to go on that long and the restrictions, the recommended restrictions are going to be in place that long, what happens to the conventions? What happens to the Olympics? What happens to the entire election campaign? We're in an election season. How does it play out? To me, it was almost mind boggling when I heard Trump say that.
2: So Dr. Fauci says that's sort of the outer bound. He told me that was the outer bound, right? Which is, that is the absolute worst case scenario. But again, if we continue to treat this like a passing inconvenience, then we are looking at August. We are looking at July. I think that uh, the authorities can only do so much. And that question of social cohesion of how much we are willing to do as, as, as Americans really is really at the heart of this.
1: So, Alex, speaking of uh, your interview with Tony Fauci, and by the way, you're working on a profile of him, which I look forward to seeing. Fauci, by the way, who is the director of the NIH of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health, He's become ubiquitous. He did the full Ginsburg on Sunday, on all the Sunday talk shows. He's a kind of a reassuring figure, I think, for a lot of Americans. One of the things that is interesting to see, and and you've become a kind of a student of Tony Fauci, is how he balances the need to tell the truth um, and be direct with the American people about what they're facing with the needs uh, to not alienate the president of the United right. States, and and keep that. So, talk a little bit about how deft he's been at doing that, and what you've seen in terms of that performance. And we know it is performance. Some do it better than others. Listen,
2: Danny, you know as well as I do. You don't survive in this town in Washington for, I mean, four decades now without having some political skill. He's an excellent doctor, but he's also a very good politician. So, let's go back to 1981 when he's sitting in his office and he gets a morbidity report about five gay men, I believe, in in, in Los Angeles suffering from some unknown troubling disease of which I believe two or three had died. That disease, of course, would come to be known as HIV and AIDS. But who was president in 1981? Ronald Reagan. He would not mention AIDS for years. And it was up to Fauci to work on AIDS in an incredibly hostile political climate while also facing down activists who accused him directly of not acting fast enough. And the fact that he became you know, friends with uh, the sort of the most prominent of those activists while remaining in the good graces of Republican presidents, including Reagan and George H.W. Bush, I think that's really incredible. It speaks to his skill at navigating these incredibly complex political, but also cultural currents, and not alienating people while also not sort of deceiving them. I really do think that that explains why He has been such a mainstay of Washington in its public health infrastructure for so long.
0: Do you have any sense of how he thinks or responds when he hears or when he heard the president over the last few weeks seeming to dismiss the seriousness of this crisis, seeming to say it's all going to wash, not seeming to, saying it's all going to wash through, this is all going to blow over, don't worry, don't panic. Well, look, he himself told me people should not get panicky. Well, you never want people to panic, but you do want them to take it seriously. Right. And Trump's comments didn't actually uh, support that message.
2: I think what we're seeing in Trump is a real shift in the last couple of days, especially today. So I think that, and you could sort of see in the mood in the briefing room from Fauci, from Burks. It was a little bit of a lighter mood because I think it was finally apparent that Trump gets how serious this is and that they don't have to step around this very issue of, we think this is serious, but our boss doesn't, so work with us here. Now everybody is really on the same page. And you could sort of tell just in the way the briefing went. There were fewer questions about, do you think this is a hoax? are you taking this seriously? It's clear that Trump is taking this seriously. And I think there was no point when that was more obvious than when he said, listen, the markets will take care of themselves, let's beat this disease first. You know as well as I do. He cares about nothing like he cares about the markets. And he seems to say the markets aren't the foremost thing here.
0: How about when he got the question from our Yahoo colleague, Hunter Walker, to rate his performance and he put it at a 10? Well, he's going to be Trump, right? But there was something very interesting.
2: Our colleague Hunter, who, you know, went in, you know, went into the briefing room, which uh, that takes some backbone to go into a small, narrow room. You know, I admire
0: him for doing that. I think there were more than 10 people. People there, by the way. So this higher briefing was in violation of the new government recommended guidelines. And
2: the room is very small. It's a small windowless, often pretty human room. I, I, I would not want to be down there right now, but I'm glad that he and others are, are courageous enough to go in. Uh, but he asked Trump about whether he takes responsibility for testing. Now, in the past, Trump has explicitly blamed Obama for Sort of a poor testing infrastructure, which I don't think is a fair criticism, but that but Trump has made it this time around. He started to do it, and then he went back and he said it was. They had different concerns; they didn't have to have a testing regime like we have to have now. So certainly he didn't say any, he didn't praise Obama, he didn't take responsibility, but he also didn't do the the sort of the vituperative blaming that we've become accustomed to. So I think there really was a sign there. So
1: speaking of of testing, you did get to ask Tony Fauci the question that I've been obsessed right. with, and I don't think you got a I fully satisfactory uh, I mean, answer. But I'd like to hear. I'd like you to try to tease out you know wh- what he said. My, my question, of course, is why did the CDC not? go with the WHO-approved test developed by German scientists. That cost us a few weeks, a few precious weeks, which meant that uh, we didn't know how many people were out there with the virus, you know, spreading it to other people. So, what
2: did he say? He said, uh, you know, I, I also was not satisfied by, the, uh, by his answers. He said, look, it was a complicated issue and I don't think it was anybody's fault. And let's look at the future, not the past, which, of course, is an understandable response. He doesn't want to litigate this thing. But I think we need to know. Right. I mean, we need to know why Tesla available yeah, and not I, used. And I didn't get a good look. Assessment. And I get that.
1: I, I, I understand why. At a moment like this, we're in the middle of the crisis, the numbers are going up, more people are going to get sick, more people are going to die, that you don't want to spend your time on recriminations. Isakov it reminds me a little bit of after nine eleven, when we had uh, significant reporting on the intelligence failures, some of which we reported, it didn't get any attention really because the country wasn't ready. For those kinds of recriminations, but Uh, but folks came
0: around to that, and we finally got the 9/11 Commission, which the Bush White House had resisted for quite some time. But the pressure was so great that eventually it got uh, named and did. Yeah, and ultimately, it is our
1: job. It is our job to ask these questions. It is important that public officials confront them so that uh, the next time around, we don't make the same mistakes. We make different ones. (laughs) um, We make different ones. But I appreciate your asking, Fauci, even if we didn't get an answer. We will get an answer to this question at some point. (laughs)
2: I would be remiss since you're, you're my boss. I am I, following this issue, but I've gotten nothing satisfactory. And uh, yeah, it's, con- tr- it's strange. Uh, it's just the tests are out in China on January 16th. Why didn't we have them? I, I, it is an absolutely a fair question to continue to ask.
0: I got a question for you, which uh, on the vaccine front, Fauci has been saying for some time it could take up to a year or a year and a half before we actually have a vaccine that people could take that could protect them from this virus. That seems like a really long time. And given we're in a national emergency here, is there any hope or prospect that we could see something sooner? And is there a Manhattan Project-like campaign effort right now going into developing such a vaccine.
2: Yes, uh, there is, Michael. We're we're, we're witnessing it. It's we the Manhattan project was about destroying lives. This is about saving them. And if we don't get this right and we issue a vaccine to the public that is somehow harmful that would just be unconscionable. And so I don't I don't think they're just giving us a high number to underpromise and you know and over deliver. I, I do think it's gonna take many months to make sure that to go through the proper clinical protocols. I just you can't cut those short. That's not, you know, the, the fabled Washington bureaucrat acting out of an abundance of caution. That's just to keep people safe. So I don't think so. I'm sorry to say.
1: Alex, um, looking forward, the thing that I think most public health officials are worried about, really petrified about, is what happens if our public health system gets overloaded. We may not have enough hospital capacity, enough uh, hospital beds and ICU units, uh, ventilators. You can imagine, you know, crowds at emergency rooms and in hospitals and you know, horrible choices that doctors are going are gonna to have to make about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. Give us your sense of where we are in terms of that situation.
2: Well, Danny, we don't have enough ICU beds. We don't have enough respirators and we don't have enough time. But we may, if we flatten that fabled curve, and Dr. Burke said this, if we flatten that curve, if we keep people from getting sick, we won't need those respirators. We won't need those, ice, those beds in the ICU. That's really what we should – if we get to the point where we're rationing care, we've lost this battle
0: well let's hope we don't to keep our uh, mental sanity uh for those of us uh, essentially in lockdown in our homes but alex it's great you're out there covering this and um we will have you back in the coming days and weeks
1: stay healthy and uh social distance to the extent that you can while also being a good the good aggressive reporter that you are and getting the facts that we need
2: well my grandmother taught me how to wash my hands at an early age so i'm i'm pretty confident (laughs) thanks guys all right
1: Joining us today on the podcast is Dr. Katherine Jacobson, Yahoo News' new public health contributor. Dr. Jacobson is an epidemiologist and public health specialist, and she joins us from her home in Fairfax, Virginia. So, Dr. Jacobson, thank you for joining us. We are very happy to have you uh with Yahoo News and Oscar Duggery.
3: Thank you. Glad to be meeting you.
1: Okay, so we we are talking just after a White House press conference in which President Trump was asked by a reporter what he's telling his son, Barron. And he said, it's bad. It's bad. Uh, He said, we'll be fighting this for many months. Meanwhile, earlier today, the Surgeon General said that with the current projections, there's every chance that we will be like Italy. And people have seen the news out of Italy and all of the images from there. So I just want to start by asking you, I mean, it the tone and the tenor of what we're hearing uh, from the government has taken a pretty serious and almost dire turn. And I just want to ask you, just to start out, how worried should Americans be right now? And are you seeing any evidence of progress as the government is turning all of its resources to deal with this uh, this threat.
3: Yeah, it's been a really remarkable transformation. It was less than a week ago when things were still operating pretty normally, and we had professional sports teams playing, and almost all of our kids were in school. And now, in just a few days, everything has changed. And it's not just changing at the federal level. It's changing at the state and local levels, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how this will be unfolding. In some ways, it's really helpful that we've got some uh, guidance now about some really intense measures to take that take some of the guesswork out of the decisions that local government officials are making when it comes to things like schools, restaurants closing, and that sort of thing. But it is a remarkably fast change and one that's really hard for the typical person or even a public health specialist to keep up with. What we don't want to see is people panicking. Panicking isn't very helpful. We've talked a lot over the past weeks about preparedness, and I don't think that most people were ready for the kind of lockdowns that it seems may be happening in the near future. But we have been thinking, many of us across the country, about how we would handle social distancing it just seems that that timeline may have stepped up a bit faster than we thought it would. Well, well.
1: speaking of that timeline speeding up, I want to ask you about one particular CDC guidance and the difference between yesterday and today. So yesterday, which would have been Sunday, the CDC said that there should be no gatherings of people of 50 or more people. 24 hours later, the guidance is it's down to 10 people or more should not gather. That, I mean, on the one hand, that says, okay, the government is, is taking this seriously. They're trying to get ahead of this thing to the, to the extent they can. But it also, I think, might be unsettling to people that uh, if it's 50, then why not 20? Why not 10? Well, now it's 10. Why not five? Maybe we shouldn't be sitting across the dinner table from, from our child. I mean, how does a public health official assess these kinds of changes And give us some sense of what does the government base this on?
3: So, first of all, there's no magic number. We don't know what the threshold is that would minimize transmission between people at the community level, which is what we're trying to do with this. There's also no playbook. We've never seen anything like this before. Everyone is trying to make some best guesses. And there are going to be more changes like this coming up when some of the advice that has gone out in the previous weeks get changed. And those changes aren't necessarily that people were not being fully transparent before, it's just that as the science comes in, as we get better mathematical models that say, here's our projection of if we do this thing, what's gonna happen, those recommendations will change to fit with the data that we're starting to observe in communities across the country and across the world. But it is unsettling when those numbers change. What we're trying to do here is limit households having contact with other households. Everybody in your household is uh, interacting all the time. If one person is going out into the world and bringing the infection home, it's likely that everybody in the household is going to become exposed. If you happen to have 20 people in your household, that's fine if you're all staying home together uh, moving forward. So again, it's not about that magic number, but the idea would be how do we minimize the number of people who are going out, mingling with each other, interacting, and then possibly bringing that back to new communities in other places. And so that's the goal right now, the social distancing is about trying to remove that physical contact between people. Let's just slow this down the best we can for now.
0: Uh, Dr. Jacobson, I'd like to ask you a bit about the numbers in U.S. cases. We've seen a dramatic increase. I mean, last week we were talking in the hundreds. Uh, We're now up to 4,287 confirmed U.S. cases. Now, I understand that the real number is probably much greater than that because most people have not been tested. But the U.S. deaths is still pretty low, Uh, 74. That's a lot more than there were a few days ago, but it's still a low number. What should we make of those numbers and you know, do they
3: tell us anything about where we're headed? When we see the number of deaths, we're seeing where the number of infections was two or three weeks ago. There's a lag time. So it takes about a week from the time someone is exposed to when that person might get symptoms. Then it might take another week until a person who's symptomatic gets pneumonia if that person is going to get pneumonia, and many people don't. And then someone who gets pneumonia, it might be another week before that person dies from it, if that person is going to not survive. So it's a really long timeline. We're gonna see a lot more cases diagnosed this week. And those cases are going to be showing where our number of infections was a week or two weeks ago. They're not going to be telling us what's happening now. We're not gonna see the effect of whether these social distancing measures are limiting the number of new infections for another week or two. So the data that are coming in tell us about the past, not the present. What we do know is as more testing happens, there's going to be a lot more diagnoses coming in this week. We will start to see the number of deaths go up. And it's going to be a little hard to remember that that is the pre-social distancing situation.
1: And one of the reasons that we don't have an accurate account of, of the numbers yet is because of the testing issue because it took so long for us to ramp up testing in this country. And I want to ask you one question that I have not been able to get a, a clear answer from from anybody which is at the outset of this uh, what was not even called a pandemic yet but this outbreak in China and uh, and then in, in other countries um, but before it came to the United States the WHO approved a test, a test that I believe was developed by German scientists. The CDC chose not to use that test. They said they were gonna develop their own. We all know now that that test, it took a while for it to get online, it was flawed. Those delays meant that we lost a fair amount of precious time. Do you know why the CDC would not have accepted the WHO-approved test? Can you explain that to our listeners?
3: I wish that I could, but I, like you, am not entirely sure how those decisions were being made. I think that a year from now, there will be lots of people in lots of countries looking back to China, looking back to South Korea, Japan, Iran, Italy, the U.S., everywhere else and saying, what could we have done differently? Now is probably not the time to invest too much effort in looking backwards when we need to really be focusing on the next couple of weeks and how we try to mitigate the possibility that this becomes even more extreme than we're projecting.
0: Doctor, you're um, doing this um, interview from home. Tell us a little bit about what practices you are following right now. Are you going out? Are you going to the grocery store? Do you have family members who are mingling with other people?
3: I am going to do my best as a public health professional to follow whatever guidance comes out of the CDC. So I had my shopping list. I was planning to go get more groceries today or tomorrow, and I've decided I'm going to eat what I've got in my pantry and try to avoid going out here in the near future. There's no need when I've got some food in the pantry to rush out. Um, I'm going to let other people who maybe didn't have time to stock up get the supplies that we have there now. I've told my parents that I really don't want them out interacting with other people. They're getting groceries delivered, and I've asked them to keep that up until I tell them that they're uh, able to go out and mingle again. And obviously, none of us are excited about the idea of being socially cut off and, and not seeing our family members and friends in person for a while. But if we take this seriously for a few weeks, we can shorten the timeline until we get this under control let me let me ask you,
0: because uh, my family is ordering groceries to be delivered as well. But even that, I mean, somebody is delivering those groceries. They're touching the bags they're in. Presumably multiple other people have done so as well to get them the, those groceries in those bags. I mean, You know, at some point, one wonders, is there any real
3: safety with a virus like this? There is no perfect system. If you get food delivered to your house, you can take it, you can dump it into a new container, throw out the old container, wash your hands, and you should be basically okay. Only people who are infected can put germs onto surfaces. So if the person who's delivering the food is not infected and the other people who handled it are not infected, they're not going to be putting those germs onto your food packaging. That's part of why public health officials are saying, if you feel sick, please stay home. We wanna make sure that sick people who know that they're sick, who are symptomatic, are not contributing to the spread. Obviously, there are some challenges with asking certain people like delivery folks and restaurant workers to be working. But we do know that essential personnel isn't just doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers. Essential personnel includes law enforcement officers and other safety officers. It includes restaurants and grocery stores. It includes the people who run our public water systems and keep the electricity and Internet going. So there are a lot of people who are essential for those of us who are able to work from home. Following these guidelines for a few weeks and really taking them seriously will let those more uh, essential workers who need to be out of the home do their jobs to keep everything functioning as best as we can under really challenging circumstances.
1: Dr. Jacobson, one of the things that public health officials, and I'm sure uh, you as well, are most concerned about is the pressure, the burden that all of this is going to put on the health system and the danger of it you know, collapsing um, in, in some areas. How worried are you about that? What are you specifically worried about? And where do you think we can kind of mitigate those threats to the public health system?
3: Well, one thing we have to think about is that there is already uneven access to healthcare services. So, for example, people who live in rural areas generally don't have such easy access to healthcare services as people who live in urban areas. There are also gaps with how people can access care based on their employment situation, their insurance, their income levels. Uh, that those problems existed long before coronavirus came. The idea right now is that public health measures will hopefully reduce the burden on the hospital system a month or two from now. If we do nothing and we continue life as normal and everybody is out interacting with each other, in just a few weeks, maybe the end of April, maybe early May, we will see lots of hospitals that have way too many patients who are seriously ill to care for them properly. If with this public health distancing, we're able to slow that down, we can keep those hospitals from being overrun or at least we can start to delay it until we've got some better treatment protocols in place till we have time for more uh, ventilation devices to be created more face masks to be produced we have to protect our public health workforce we can't afford for doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers to be out sick And the way we protect them is by slowing this down and giving them time to get the gear that they need, the training they need, and the scientific information that they need to handle this in the coming months.
0: If somebody made you uh, the coronavirus czar tomorrow, are there any steps that you would order that have not already been taken?
3: I think we're getting on track now because there are so many recommendations that have come out over the past several days. One of the challenges that any coronavirus czar would have is that our public health system is not one where the CDC just says, here's what everybody's going to do. The CDC for most things issues guidance and then it's up to the states and in some cases the local areas to follow through. So we've seen with school closures, governors can shut down schools in a state, local school districts can shut down schools. It's not typically the federal government that does that kind of directive. So we have some challenges with the way that this response works and no one person has the ability to make some of these things happen or happen quickly. The key thing that we need to do this week is to work on getting more tests out to people, getting more people tested and really mapping where this is. We know that there are some hotspots in Seattle, there's a hotspot in New York. We're aware of some clusters of cases, but we really don't have a good sense in a lot of states of how widespread this is. And until we can do that mapping, there's not really an ability to do tailored responses. So it could be that there are some places that aren't really affected very much yet. They may be able to do schooling in a different way than heavily affected areas where we really don't want kids going to school for many weeks to come. We need knowledge, we need science to be able to do that. And until we have the tests, it's kind of a holding pattern.
1: I want to ask you just about best case scenarios, because we like to be optimistic on this podcast occasionally. We do? Um, <laughs>
0: I hadn't noticed that. Uh, well, Isikoff doesn't, <laughs>
1: but I do. If things go as well as you think they can go, if if uh, we uh, as a government and a society and a people respond as well as we possibly can, if social distancing you know, becomes a daily part of our lives, and we embrace it as a society. If testing works as well as uh, the government is now saying it's going to work, is this a uh, public health emergency that will last for a few weeks? Do you expect it'll be many months? I know this is it's hard to speculate, but I'm I'm just looking for a best-case scenario from you?
3: I would be very happy if, say, two months from now, people say, wow, we kind of overreacted on that. I don't know that that's going to happen. I think it's going to be at least two months before we have a sense of whether we initiated these more aggressive public health measures fast enough or didn't. So I would like it to be that people say, those epidemiologists, they threw out those worst-case scenarios, and it really turned out to be okay. But that's not gonna happen unless people really take it seriously now.
1: And what is your sense of whether people are taking it seriously now?
3: Yeah, it was a bit discouraging this weekend to see the stories of people going out to bars and having parties. And I heard of college and university students who said, well, our our campus is shutting down. We're gonna party the weekend away before we move out of our dorms. Those sorts of behaviors are not recommended at this time. I hope that moving forward, we'll have people who say it is now time to hunker down at home.
1: But well, I have one last question on this, which is about communications and rhetoric and where the line is between not instilling panic in people, but giving them the information that will make them do the things that need to be done in a situation like that. How do you think about how that should be communicated to the American people?
3: One of the biggest challenges we have right now is there's just still so much uncertainty. And it's really hard to talk about uncertainty and to say, well, this might be done in X number of weeks, or it could be this many years. Right? We We have to put ranges out there of how this might work. That's hard to communicate and then it also makes it seem like people were not being open early on when we get new information and we can become more certain. So uh, I hope that people will be, I guess, forgiving of their public health officials if they have to clarify things as we get more information. So we need transparency, we need openness, we need to be very clear about why interventions are happening especially if things like transportation restrictions go into place. If there are curfews, people need to trust that those are being done for a very well-supported evidence-based reason, that they are being implemented equitably and it's fair, and that they're going to be removed and people can go back to normal life as soon as it's safe for them to do so. So we need good communication, we need to figure out how to talk about uncertainty and yeah, it's going to be an interesting few weeks here, but expect that a week or two from now, we're going to start to see some slightly different recommendations as we get more information about where this is worst.
1: Well, frankly, what I think we need is more conversations like this one, and we really appreciate your expertise, your sober tone, and your willingness to uh, come and talk to Yahoo News in our audience. Um, and... and uh, be a part of this story that is going to be with us for a while. So thank you so much, Dr. Jacobson, for joining us. We're delighted that you uh, have come on board as our public health contributor and expert, and we look forward to talking to you again soon.
3: Yes, we'll talk again soon. Be safe, everyone, and please do try to listen to those recommendations and follow them.
1: Thanks to Yahoo News reporter Alex Nazarian and epidemiologist and public health expert Catherine Jacobson, Yahoo News' public health contributor, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media
2: at Skullduggery.com. Pot. Talk to you soon.